Welcome everybody to the week of February 5th to 12th of This Week in History podcast. I am once again joined by Andre. Hello. And first we'll start off with February 5th in 1909. Belgian chemist Leo Bakeland announced his invention of Bakelite, the world's first synthetic plastic. Now as many of you know, plastic is always in the headlines in modern society in the 21st century. It is used for a myriad of things, from hospitals to bags, quite literally everything. So, Andre knows a lot more than me in this topic. So, Andre, how about you start us off? Talk to us about this first synthetic plastic. Sure. So, what this famous Belgian chemist created, uh, Leo Bakeland, uh, he created this sort of polymer. So, polymer is basically what all plastics are. They're a chain, chain of, well, polymers that kind of formed this like net that's very stretchy and very cheap to make and basically what we call plastic nowadays. And what Leo Bakeland created was something that revolutionized the way we perceive industry and consumer goods and how we conserve anything nowadays. And it set the start of something called the age of polymers and plastics. Now, this was very early on. This was in 1909. But if you look at old advertisements from like the 1950s, you'll see a lot of people, a lot of these companies brag about how they used plastics a lot. And companies like uh, Tupperware made it, exp- uh, made it a, an explicit point to really advertise their products and put made out of plastic or this can last months on end in your fridge or anywhere conserving your goods. And it's an interesting uh, legacy because when we go back to the 1950s and we, we kind of see how plastic was at the time and is still considered like a progressing field and something that's very revolutionizing uh, compared to what what is nowadays a scourge. And according to this Guardian article I was reading earlier today, uh, people are starting to worry a lot about microplastics. and it explicitly focuses on something uh, uh, related to the rise of single-use plastics, and it's that to- kind of kind of plastic that Bakelite kind of set the standard for, which are plastics that are cheap to make, easily like you can easily throw them away, and they're simply everywhere because they're just so good at holding things at cons- uh, at conserving foods and produce and it's just very interesting too because it, it started as something revolutionary and now we're seeing it as a as a plague and something that we have to eliminate and in general uh polymers so i'm gonna look a bit more into the chemistry of it probably not very specific because we're not really a chemistry podcast but i'm kind of i'm just gonna try to under, uh, explain to you guys how this ended up being created now plastic comes from plasticus from greek and its meaning is moldable and it's a popular term plastic for a synthetic man-made polymer and as i said at the start polymers are these very large molecules that create chains and create giant uh substances that we can just hold and use for a variety of things we want to want to do and polymers exist in nature naturally and the way leo baker bakeland kind of understood and discovered these was that he investigated the nature of it and how you could see this in nature he looked at it up close and he replicated it and if you're in chemistry in high school your teacher and the latter stages of your of the curriculum and when you're more knowledgeable of how polymers work and you're more understanding of stuff like organic chemistry he'll sort of display this very cheap experiment you can replicate and that was basically what bakeland created and it's just like this very cheap and easy to make chain of monomers which just ended up becoming plastic as we see now so, Dimitri, if you want to talk to us a bit more about, like, the issue of single-use plastics and 
how this relates to the rise in microplastics and just how that's become something very popular in that in the news today. Yeah, sure. You know me, I'm an environmental scientist, as I am in the <laughs> environmental systems course, the IB course. So I am very familiar with plastic and its effects. So it's very interesting that you mentioned that it was popular, excuse me, popularized in the 1950s and onwards. And these posters branded to show that plastic will last a lot longer. And for me, what's interesting, as you said in the news, is we see world governments switching back to paper bags. And this is a monumental step in terms of the philosophy that these governments employ to look at new inventions because plastic was such a revolutionary invention because the fact is you mentioned polymers and they're very, very cheap to make. And suddenly everything became plastic and now they're switching back. For example, the Canadian government recently employed a law where plastic bags were completely outlawed in any store. And moreover, microplastics, right? So microplastics are any sort of plastic that are considered to be 0.05 millimeters, so excuse me, less than 5 millimeters in length. And interestingly enough, a new disease surrounding microplastics was discovered, you could say invented, discovered. It's called plasticosis. And I'm going to throw up an image right here of what plasticosis is exactly. It's a disease that mostly encompasses water birds, not water birds, birds that are in the sea, essentially, that survive on the sea and eat fish from there. So looking at Midway Island, which of course is the site of the famous battle, but is now site of a great, great garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean. And what scientists have found is that they have found so much plastic in these birds because at this point plastic has become very commonplace every country is producing millions and millions of tons of it and now we're seeing this in our seabirds now if we look into the historical context we could also think of the impact on the world what plastics do and as well as the plastics that are found in fish so a lot of the world specifically southeast asia or sorry fish are used a lot in for food in Southeast Asia, particularly countries such as Vietnam. Well, of course, they they have a lot of rice there too, but fishing is a big industry in Japan and most of the oceanic countries. Now, because of the populations, they excuse me, because the population relies on fish as their primary source of protein because it's just so plentiful in the Pacific Ocean, we could start to see even people developing this type of disease, although there hasn't been a case of a person, not inhibiting, excuse me, uh, getting this disease called plasticosis, which is found in birds, right? It inflames their, their respiratory system because of the plastics they ingest. So this is interesting because we might see this in the near future where plastics are actually harming our life. And if we look at male testosterone counts, which have been going down since World War II, although they have been fluctuating, I won't get into the theories around male testosterone, but some studies have found that if you, but that plastics can decrease a person's testosterone. Yet I haven't looked into too deep into these studies, but it's another factor of plastic. Again, it is synthetic. Not to say that everything natural is good for you, but just something something to note. And it's not to not to mention Nestle. So of course everybody knows Nestle, the American water company or distilled water company. And we can talk for hours about their businesses in Flint, Michigan. And these, I think it was Flint, Michigan. Their dealings in Michigan in terms of the water supply and in India, how Nestle essentially distills their water and steals it from them. Again, this is alleged and to an extent. I'm not saying that they did this, but there are... I get sued. Yeah, there are documentaries covering Nestle's misdeeds and how does this relate to plastics? Well, every Nestle product is in plastic. In fact, now we have water in plastic directly shipped to our houses. So that's something interesting for our viewers to think about how water has become a commodity and a lot of, not liberals per se, but a lot of people believe that water should be free for everybody and not be sold as a commodity as through store. One could say it's a critique on capitalism, walking into your gas station, just seeing just water, which is such such a basic need in the Western world, seeing it like sold for a euro, 
that's something interesting to think about plastics too. But before I end my point, I would like our viewers to see just how how much plastic everybody uses per day. Like right now, I have two plastic water bottles in front of me because I have water on my desk. And it's everywhere, right? Everybody has, I'm sure mm-hmm. some of our viewers have some Lego sets lying around. Those are made out of plastic. Your monitor, your keyboard, your mouse, your microphone. Most of my computers and parts in my computer are made out of plastic. And if we were to somehow get rid of it, it would be very, very, very difficult to. And it would be practically impossible to get rid of it because it, it has become so intertwined with our lives and our consumption as well as well as our workplace so that's that's my point about microplastics and plastics in general for that matter yeah and it's interesting that you mentioned that especially when you talked about how sales of water becomes sort of like a critique of capitalism itself and a critique can also be made with how we use plastics nowadays and i think that's the connection you tried to make there with the water bottles and Mm -hmm. the sale of water and it's, uh, it's something that we notice a lot because in the headlines, we uh, at least I've read, that there are gigantic islands of plastic just in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or near India where these rising economies that simply, uh, especially India and China, is, that do not have the means to properly dispose or reutilize the, mm-hmm. these resources and, and really engage in the sort of circular economy with, with plastics. Uh, that they're just throwing it away into the ocean. It's becoming a very, very big hazard with uh, plasticosis, I think, with the issue with birds, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And in the sense that this is really becoming an issue, both for our marine, uh, both for for the nature and for the integrity of our marine life, and also Mm -hmm. the integrity of the human body itself, because recently we've discovered microplastics inside the human heart mm. which is concerning because we do we just don't know what that causes nowadays for health but that that sort of uh understanding is something interesting that i, that I feel like it's it's nice to leave you guys off with so do you want to move us on to our next topic yeah sure we still have a little bit of time left just to finish us off so i will give some sure. closing arguments some closing points so it's interesting you mentioned of course the microplastics found in the heart and this is very, very new phenomenon, just like, let's say, smoke. It's just like vaping, for example. We just don't know the long-term effects of this. And, of course, our lifespan is going up incrementally, and if we're thinking globally. But perhaps the interconnectedness of plastic may harm that because it is what we do know is it is a synthetic substance. It has caused this new disease, which was only discovered in 2023, plasticosis inside birds. It has undoubtedly polluted the pacific ocean leaving the great pacific garbage patch as well it now exists we see turtles having straws stuck in their noses of course there's your little social media meme right there and we see world governments looking to look for reusable plastics or a completely alternative form of plastic but the interesting thing with plastic is you cannot just get rid of it all entirely because it's used for hospital needles and hospital needles cannot be disposable if you look at a hospital needle with a microscope it has to be very sanitary that's why we have that's why we have needle problems especially with uh that's why people don't share needles because they can get infected very easily because the you know what i'm trying to say the point it breaks essentially so we'll get on to our next topic here We'll begin with February 4th with our Yalta conference. I'll keep this very brief because, again, it's a very, very big topic. But our friends, Joseph Stalin, I'm blanking, Winston Churchill and FDR met in Yalta, which it's in modern day Russia. You could say Ukraine. It's in Crimea. And they met and they met to discuss the future of Europe and the future yeah, the future of Europe and I would say the world. So how about Andre, you can also start us off with this topic and then I'll add some more sure. points to that later. So as Dimitri said, the aim of this conference was to really create, a, once the allies really realized that, well, the Germans lost, there was no real, real way of putting it and the, the war was won. Then the allies determined that 
since this war was so devastating and since it was like the second one that happened in, in the, the first half of a century, that they were in the moral righteousness to create and shape a new peace, a reality that could sort of avoid the confrontations and the issues that led to the rise of fascism, to the rise of militarism, and to the to what inevitably caused both World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. both uh, all distinct conflicts with their own reasons, but that were all connected to general systemic issues that the Allies sought to avoid. Now, it represented not only like a matter of creating new institutions and creating a sort of world government that could avoid the, the issues that arose because of World War II and World War I, but also a sort of collective global security. And this is where countries like the U.S. created this identity as a watchman state or a global police to prevent the rise of authoritarianism, which is something you'll hear a lot uh, throughout high school. And it's an interesting observation that you can make. And this all originated in the Yalta Conference. Now, as Dimitri said, this was the uh, conjunction of associates from the representatives of the Soviet Union, the United States, and the United Kingdom, represented by Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And these were the big three allies, which was sort of followed later on by the Potsdam Conference, which would end up cementing all the issues and the creation of a new world peace. But what Yalta did was create the ideas for it. Now, by then, uh, I think this is something Dimitri is more well-suited for, so I'm kind of going to set out for this. Mm -hmm. So the Yalta Conference was realized right after the Western Allies had all already liberated all of France and Belgium and were Mm -hmm. kind of pushing into Germany. So if you want to kind of explore more about the intricacies of how what the war was like at the time and what your views are on the Yalta Conference, then please share sure. it to, to all, all our viewers. So as you said, at this point, the Allies have liberated France and Belgium and are enclosing on the western border of Germany. And Soviet forces were around 40 miles from Berlin. And... Arguably, my theories are the war had already ended in 1943, that we already knew that Germany was going to lose this war because we talked about it. I think it was our second or first episode about Germany's massive, massive oil problem. But if we look into the intricacies and diplomacy involved in the Yalta Conference, it was really the last time we had these three major countries not agreeing on something, but participating something this large and agreeing on so many things and having one common enemy to deal with, that being, of course, Germany. We've never really had, let's say, Russia, the you could say the UK and America come together and really talk things out. And that's really absent in today in terms of modern politics, which really brings in the idea from Sun Tzu's Art of War. It's like, is the enemy, what, what was the quote? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And you could have yeah. a little debate on that because after this conference ended, there was very clear, there's still tension between especially the USSR and and the United States. As now at this point, it was cemented that they were not going to be cordial with each other after the end of this conference. And especially we could see it was Operation, was it Operation? Operation Unthinkable, that was the operation. Operation Unthinkable was also being thought of during this time and thinking, okay, if the Soviets do something wrong, we may need to invade them. And that was a precaution that the Western allies had to do. This, again, comes back to the tensions that they had. In addition, Stalin had ordered the annexation of Polish lands east of the Curzon line, which I'll throw a picture up on screen. And... Again, I don't want to go too much in depth to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact or anything of that, but I will say that the Polish government in exile, so when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, Poland had a government. It was an authoritarian government, but it was not communist. So at that point, the Soviets had rejected to put that government in place because by this point, the Soviets were occupying Poland. So now we have this completely empty Polish cabinet, which is now, it's, it's an exile. And this comes back to the idea that the Soviets have mistreated Eastern Europe during their, you could say, liberation 
on their march towards Berlin and brewing further tensions between the U.S., the U.S., U.K., and the USSR. And I also would like to briefly mention the three plans that were drafted up for Germany there during this time. So, or sorry, yeah, three plans. So there was the partition plan from Winston Churchill. I'll bring it up on screen, something a little interesting. Yeah, that was an interesting one. You have a North German state, and then you have a South German state, which includes Hungary, as well as Carpathian, Ruthenia, Bavaria, and Austria. I think I already said that, but that's, that's what it is. I don't know what Winston Churchill was thinking here. Why would he unite Hungary with Austria and Bavaria, as well as the little part, Carpathian, Ruthenia, there in the right, which the Soviet Union had claimed and at this point wanted to annex. And then we have a West German state in the Rhine. Very interesting historical plan for the division of Germany. If this if this really happened, I would be really curious to see what the alternate history would be like if you had Austria and Hungary again in one state, just like just like 1914. We also have the Morgenthau Plan, which really divided Germany up. Probably one of the harsher treaties here, because you had these bottom part Oberslesien of Silesia going to Poland. Of course, Poland receiving that little part of Eastern Prussia. But more importantly, we have this interesting international zone, international zone in the Rhine and in the Ruhr as well as giving part of the Rhine to France. Now, of course, this would probably be a temporary occupation because at this point, France had not wanted to annex any land from Germany. They already had annexed World, uh, Assassin's in World War I. Again, interesting plan. It's called the Morgenthau Plan. And then, of course, we have the final plan, which was in development during this time where we had several occupation zones as well as the establishment of the Saar Protectorate and the Saar land right on the border with France. We had Poland gaining concessions in eastern Prussia because, remember, guys, the Soviet Union had taken a lot of that eastern Polish land during the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. As I talked about, the Curzon line is very similar. And we had Poland receiving these ancient German lands. So we like to talk about historical territory and the, those lands, the Silesia and Pomerania, it was a part of Germany for longer than, like, the Roman Empire. It was German as German. And it comes really into the debate of resettling people because during the liberation of Eastern Europe by the Soviet Union there was a lot of shuffling of the population to not cause this war again if we look at an ethnic map of Germany in 1936 we could see all the Germans in the Sudetenland Germans in Austria right Germans in Danzig and now they wanted to fix this because they believe the ethnicities were causing the war because the whole shebang of Hitler's theory was we have to unite all of Germany into one state so what the Soviets decided to do is to redistribute the population. Now, the Poles would live in these lands, and exclusively the Poles. The Czechs would only inhabit all of Czechia, and etc., etc. So, of course, there's, there's an emotional point that comes with it as well. Because you're forcing histories, these families, especially in Pomerania, Silesia, these German people who have lived there their entire lives for generations upon generations. You could say hundreds, maybe not thousands, but hundreds of years in this area and they are deported back to East Germany where they have to live again under East Germany. Interesting point I like to bring up. That I, yeah, it, That was an interesting point that I like to bring up as well. <laughs> There's a lot of that is cost, very Yeah, it is very interesting. And of course you have the partition of Berlin which you, you have Berlin being split itself up was very unique. The what partition was? of Berlin was a unique event in history. Something mm. that people hadn't really thought possible because the Soviets were basically encircling Berlin and an order given by Stalin himself had, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the supreme commander of the Red Army, uh, uh, George Zhukov, that he was to advance as fast as possible to Berlin so that the Soviets could take control of the city first and liberate it first. Mm -hmm. And that's where an interesting picture, a very, very famous picture, comes, comes into mind, which is a Soviet soldier raising the Soviet flag mm -hmm. atop the Reichstag. Uh, if Dmitry could place that up on the, mm -hmm. on the picture once we're done editing, it's an interesting thing to, to think, imagine. But in general... I wanted to talk a bit about what the Yalta conference meant. So as Dimitri said, there are a lot of issues with both geopolitics and concessions that were made dur during the war and how Hitler basically ruined the integrity of the European state. Mm -hmm. uh, and what happened was that the Soviets, the Americans, the British, 
were just not having it. And they wanted to create a new Europe. And what they sought was something that uh, each of them promised themselves, and this is a direct quote, a declaration to create democratic institutions of their own choice, referring to the people of Europe, pledging that the earliest possible establishment through free elections, governments responsive to the will of the people, was the goal of Europe and the goal of the institutions that went out of leading to the creation of something called the European Union, an idea that was touted by people like Winston Churchill, who wanted a unified Europe, both against the Soviets, with uh, your mention of Operation Unthinkable, which is mm -hmm. something defended only by only by Winston Churchill, because <laughs> he was a bit of a madman. And if you look into the history of, of British politics, you'll see that Winston Churchill was immediately ousted from government after VE Day, and he became, he was not the prime minister anymore. But ignoring the issue of politics in, in the UK, uh, I wanted to go through some of the key points that the agreement kind of, kind of sought and what the Yalta conference discussed. And it promised an unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany, which is something pretty funny if you look into the struggle for power that Nazi Germany was dealing with, with uh, Hitler becoming uh, perceptually incapacitated by his second-in-command, uh, Goering, who sent a message to Hitler asking, if, asking for permission to take control of the, of the Nazi state. And Himmler, uh, considered by many to be the second most powerful man in the Nazi government, as he was the leader of the SS and the Gestapo. And what he was doing is he was trying to seek a peace with mm -hmm. Germ uh, for Germany yep. by his own volition without even consent, without even getting Hitler's consent. Mm -hmm. So what the allies discussed on this in this conference was that they weren't going to have any of that and that it had to be unconditional and official. And that would later come with the uh, promotion of the leader of the Kriegsmarine, I'm forgetting his name now. Karl Donitz. Karl Donitz. He became the leader of the, of the Reich, mm -hmm. and he met with the Allies to discuss an unconditional surrender for Germany. But besides an unconditional surrender, the, uh, the promise also sought a splitting of Nazi Germany into what we now see as modern Germany, into an East and West Berlin. Uh, East Berlin was entirely occupied by the Soviets, and West Berlin was later unified with the British, American, and French zones becoming a single country. And that's the border, that's after unification in the 1990s, that's the border for Germany we see nowadays. Now, besides that, uh, Stalin agreed that the French would have their own occupation zone, a fourth division, yep. that Germany must undergo demilitarization and denazification, which is an interesting process that we will discuss in a following episode once we, once we get to that time. Uh, especially with the beginning of the denazification pro process. Mm -hmm. And an interesting thing related to that is that the Allies promised that they would seek fair, uh, what's it called? Fair surveillance and investigations into the variety of war atrocities and crimes committed by the German government, mm -hmm. by the Nazi government. And that would inevitably culminate into the Nuremberg Laws, which would set the standards for mm -hmm. the Tokyo, uh, sorry, the Nuremberg, <laughs> the Nuremberg Trials. The Nuremberg Laws was something else. Uh, that mm -hmm. would set the standards for something called the Tokyo Trials in Japan, which had their own system, but that happened afterwards. Now, what would also happen is that Germany would have to pay war reparations. This was especially the case in Eastern Germany or the Soviet zone, where the Soviets exploited East, uh, the eastern part of Germany's industry and workforce capabilities to extract as much value from the land as they could. While in the western zone, the Allies eventually forgave these reparations, but for the context of Yalta, these were guaranteed. What also happened was that the status of Poland was discussed and that Poland's original borders would be returned 
with a small concession given to the Soviets to take part of the former German dominion so that the Russians could have access to the North Sea, if I'm not mistaken. Baltic, Baltic, North Sea. Baltic, Baltic yeah. Sea. And besides that, so I'm going to skip through some of the other concepts that are not very important, but Roosevelt sought to create the United Nations and made Stalin commit to it so the USSR would now be a part of the United Nations, giving it more legitimacy. Stalin wanted all 16 of the so- Soviet Socialist Republics to be granted UN membership. <laughs> 14 of them were denied. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, <laughs> would have gotten a lot of votes. I think history would have been a lot different with that. Uh, now, Roosevelt also sought a approval by the Soviets to wage war against Japan because that was the the second part of the conflict that had been occurring with Japan standing strong and just not surrendering, which inevitably led to Truman <laughs> unleashing the power of the sun onto Japan mm-hmm. twice. But that doesn't matter for now. Now, Stalin agreed to transfer to the fight against the Empire of Japan two or three months after Germany had surrendered and the war is Europe is terminated. A direct quote by Stalin himself. Nazi war criminals were to be put on trial, as I mentioned, and a committee on dismemberment of Germany was to be set up, which would create the partition of the inevitable plan that Dimitri mentioned. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, Roosevelt sought a promise from Stalin to create free and fair elections in all the East Germans, all the East European states that were taken by the USSR. We will not, will not get into that. That did not happen. But it's an interesting thing to talk about. And if Dimitri wants to make any closing remarks, yeah. that's all I have to say about the topic. It's interesting you mentioned the Soviet exploitation of East German industry. I beg to differ. Because what the rebuilding of Germany entailed was this import of workers, whether it be into West Germany with the American Marshall Plan or with the Soviet equivalent with their Comicon program as well, which sought out the the import of Russian workers, Kazakh workers to go rebuild Germany. Because at this point in 1945, it was bombed. I know a lot of people know about the bombing of Dresden and the thing with, excuse me, the policy as well with the United States was Germany first. So you had the, most of the Americans' air force focusing on Germany. So that's, we will, we will talk about denazification, as you said. And the main, the main point of the Yalta conference is let's make it different this, this time around. Because Germany had lost and had now lost again. And we don't want them to cause another world war. So instead of grabbing some territory here and there for everybody the Allies had decided to completely occupy the territory and continue this process of occupation up until the formation of, how you said, the West German and East German states, respectively. So that will leave us off for the Yalta Conference. Oh, yeah, one more thing. If you look at the borders during, or sorry, after the Yalta Conference, they're very similar to the borders we have today, which really shows the monumental nature of this event and how it has changed Europe forever. Okay. Move into our next event. So, so our next event. Sorry, <clears> hold on. Let me. Okay. So our next event is February 11th, and it's the 1975 defeat of Sir Edward Heath by Margaret Thatcher for leadership of the British Conservative Party. Now, this is an interesting event, especially considering its repercussions to the role of women in in, in British politics, and the rise of something we call nowadays neoliberalism or neoconservatism. And what, what this entailed in 1975, uh, the Conservative Party leadership election gave Margaret Thatcher the leadership role in government, for the Conservative Party at least, becoming what the British call uh, either the leader of the opposition or the prime minister, uh, either of those for their respective party is usually the leader of the party itself. Now, Margaret Thatcher won against uh, Edward Heath, and Margaret Thatcher became the first woman to become leader of a major party in British politics. 
Now, 1975 is not very remarkable for most people if you if you're paying attention to the history of politics in the UK and the US. But it is significant because the rise of Margaret Thatcher would lead to Thatcherism and the sort of rise of conservatism in the entirety of the Western world. Now, Thatcher was very close to this guy called Ronald Reagan in the US that kind of came rose to power at the same time with shifting demographics and dynamics kind of creating this perfect storm for the rise of conservatism. I'm not going to go into a lot about Thatcher. I will specifically focus on what her politics meant and how she related a lot to the politics of the United States and something that a lot of Americans called the rise of conservatism in the 1980s. Now, during the 1980s, the political center of the United States kind of shifted towards conservatism. The same occurred with the UK. And this culminated with the Reagan administration, the US, and the Thatcher government in the UK, where after 1975, the next general election gave the conservatives a significant lead, especially considering how the perception of British government at the time had the Labour Party being a very bad party in the sense that it, it created a ginormous government that was very slow and very bureaucratic and very full of red tape and full of regulations to the economy that kind of worsened Brit Britain's economic position. And this was also in the middle of the Cold War mm -hmm. in what many people consider to be the highest or the second most significant point of the Cold War with tensions between the US, the UK, and the Soviet Union kind of reaching a peak not seen before since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So what these leaders kind of sought was for the UK and the US to take a, a more staunch and very strong stance against the, the USSR. Now, both of these were very eloquent politicians, both Reagan and Thatcher, especially Reagan. Reagan was a former actor, and he had been for many years one of the best public orators in the United States and one of the most popular politicians. So when Reagan came to government, uh, it was no surprise that he ended up winning. Now, this is basically just a brief overview of what I wanted to introduce about Margaret Thatcher's uh, victory. And I see it as, as, a, as a significant issue, mainly in its repercussions rather than its history. And that's where the where I'm sort of going to shift into the realities of conservatism in the United States and the, and the United Kingdom and what that means for current economics and the current state of the world. Now, if Dimitri wants to express any anything before I go into that. Any thoughts yeah, on that? for sure. If we look at conservatism in the United States, it still continues to be very popular among the Republican Party. And if we look at conservatism as a whole, it revolves around stuff like traditional values and has recently looked towards abortion as an issue of contention within American politics. However, if we look more deeply into Thatcher, she, I believe, most famously served the United Kingdom during the Falklands War, if I'm not uh -huh. mistaken. It's a very interesting shift, and not shift, but it's very interesting in the history of the United Kingdom where you have these islands that belong to the British Empire and that continue to be a part of the UK despite these processes of decolonization. And, of course, Argentina... The islands were by Argentina, sorry, they continued to be, Argentina wanted to claim them for themselves, citing the policy of decolonization, how land must be returned. But the UK yeah. and the US stood just, you know, hand in hand. No, that's our land and it continues to be part of it. So little issue of contention within British politics, how they do own some islands still continue. Sorry, their ownership of several islands still continues to be, despite the fact that they did decolonization. And of course, France also has a few islands as well, just around, just around the Pacific. But if we look at Margaret Thatcher's leadership, she, she is most famously coined by a Soviet newspaper as being the Iron Lady. 
which is very interesting. Yeah. We can talk about the, you said the woman's role in the UK politics. Here we have a very strong woman operating one of the greatest economic powers the world has ever seen. And that shows as a, a hallmark in British women's history, as well as, as well as in conservatism as a whole. Now, this is interesting, especially when you mentioned the Falklands and how the Argentinians, which at the time were a American-backed uh, junta or a dictatorship, the Americans were uh, noticeably kind of restrictive at the beginning before the, the war, because that was basically their government. It was something the CIA had put into force in, into Argentina. And it was sort of a puppet state for the U.S. to kind of prevent the rise of communism. But kind of shifting from that and focusing more on the conflict itself, the issue of colonialism and imperialism is something that to many conservatives in the U.K. is kind of well seen. A lot of British people have pride in what they consider as to be one of the biggest empires in the world. And a return to the sort of tradition of the of the British people of remaining a significant military powerhouse, which is one of the core tenets of British conservatism, as well as the issues of economics. Now, modern uh, liberals, sorry, uh, modern conservatives in the UK have a very similar policy to what the US conservatives have especially with the pre-Trump Republican Party, where they sort of called their movement the a Reagan conservative or a Thatcher conservative, <coughs> where they promised the reduction of taxes, the limited limiting of government interference in business, and the creation of a so-called freer market uh, built on the tenets of something people tend to quote a lot, which is the freer the market, the freer the people. And together with the economics of it, they would restore traditional values for both the UK and the US. Now, an interesting thing that relates to the whole Falklands Conference with this idea of traditional values is the sense that we should not be, we should not see our history negatively. We should simply learn from it. So what the, the, the British do a lot, British conservatives, is that they see the imperialist history of the UK as a positive, as something that showed the strength of the UK in light of world politics and world affairs, and is something they are proud of. Now, of course, people, uh, it's undisputable that a lot of people see it negatively, especially conservatives, with how they simply just dominated half the world, but they shouldn't view it negatively, if that makes sense. So they're proud of their heritage and they don't see uh, people with sort of negative views of it and promoting things like the reparations to be a very, very worthy cause. Now, to associate the two, both Reagan and Thatcher together, uh, they created this movement in modern, together with, uh, sorry, with the German Chancellor Schultz, Sorry, not Schultz. Uh, the the one during the Cold War. What's his name? During the eighties, he was the one that supervised yeah. the reunification of Germany. Give oh. me a second. All right, look it up. You know, while you're looking, sorry, it up... Helmut Kohl. Helmut Kohl. All right. It's uh, Helmut Kohl. So Helmut Kohl was also uh, the sort of triad created between Reagan and Thatcher, and they created a neoliberal worldview which would seek a return of traditional liberalism and a freer market. And that associates a lot with how the 80s sought the creation of the Washington Consensus, sorry, the 90s, and how the 80s set the standard for the post-Cold War view of what the economy should look like. Now, the way people perceived the, the economy was something very interesting at the time this seeking of ruthless capitalism and ruthless liberalism is one of the leading contributors to what ended up being the great financial recession of 2008. So the standards set in, uh, set in motion throughout the 80s and following the dissolution of the Soviet Union 
where governments kind of saw the world saw the world as unipolar and the success of capitalism and something Francis Fukuyama famously quoted as calling it the end of history and that the inevitable progression of all democ of all countries would be towards a free market democratic society and it's interesting to see that the that 2008 simply devastated that worldview and what 2008 did was that it saw greediness in corporations as the as an issue to be repaired specifically on wall street a institution touted by reagan at the time and by conservatives in the 80s as basically we should let executives do what they do they should follow a shareholder value creation or something quoted by by a known economist called milton friedman and which basically meant a company should be self-interested and greedy and that they should treat anything in terms of numbers and dollars, which prompted greediness and something that inevitably led to the great financial crisis. But do not want to get into that. There are dissenting opinions on that, and I've done plenty of research on, on the repercussions of it all. But in general, that is the brief explanation of what conservatism meant and specifically to how we, we can connect it to the, the current worldview we have on economics and its repercussions in the world. Dimitri, if you have any any thoughts you want to express about this, because I have said a lot of stuff. And I appreciate your knowledge regarding the Cold War as well as the policy surrounding the United Kingdom. But you do mention how conservatives tend to view the British Empire as something that, of course, did happen and they could look well upon these events but unfortunately even today fortunately for the united kingdom they are facing a military shortage crisis which culminates it's interesting it could be an effect of neoliberalism but overall the amount of patriotism surveys were done with gallup i think it was the gallup poll the patriotism is fading within western europe this could be because of this long peace that we have it could be that the excuse me the people living inside the countries do not feel well patriotic they do not feel that they were willing to fight for their government and that's what we have here in the well not here that's what we have in the united kingdom where a lot of notable personnel are are recruited from just a few specific areas and those areas are being rural up in northern england as well as closer to wales but more importantly, around London and the urban areas, we see a decrease in personnel recruited. And in fact, according to this, I think it was the Times article, it says that three out of 10 soldiers are unfit to fight in a conflict amid growing military recruitment crises. So it's interesting to look at as well. But Let's move on to our next topic. Hopefully, I know a little more about this one. It is, of course, the Kepler Space Telescope. Now, the Kepler Space Telescope... Actually, let me mention the day before we go ahead. February 10, 2009, NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, designed to search for exoplanets, is launched. And now we know that it has discovered thousands and thousands of exoplanets. So, it was named after the German astronomer, Johannes Kepler, who... Look, who create not created who discovered the laws of planetary motion and he was and it was a nasa mission launched on march 7 2009 now let's look at the origins and development of the kepler mission so the idea was originated in the 1980s as well as the 90s for a potential for detecting exoplanets throughout transit now if you look at broader space history as a whole you had uranus being discovered by galileo and you had this idea of, okay, well, there are things out there. There are these humongous planets. And now Kepler's mission was to discover exoplanets, which are planets outside our solar system. And the early operations of Kepler, which were in March, include a Earth-trailing heliocentric orbit, allowing it to continuously observe a fixed patch of sky in the Cygnus and Lyra constellations. If we look more modernly, we, of course, have the James Webb Telescope, which has launched quite recently, and, of course, deliver, delivers us these awe-inspiring images. Of course, Kepler helped pioneer the James Webb Telescope to an extent, if I'm not mistaken. So if we look at, let's look at the discoveries of Kepler. What has... This telescope brought us over well, excuse me well over the course of its mission kepler had thousands of discoveries 
It had notably Kepler 22b, Kepler 18. I'll throw some artist interpretations on screen, 186f and Kepler 452b. Now, if we think of exoplanets, we must also think of human colonization efforts outside the solar system. It is a major debate. You could probably have it with your friends. And what you guys think about humans coming outside the solar system, of course, this is now technologically impossible, but maybe in the near future, perhaps. And it brings into the idea of should we colonize these planets? Because the idea of Kepler was to, we have to look at these planets within the Goldilocks zone, which if you guys are, are not familiar with, it's just the zone around a star. It depends, of course, on the star's mass and so forth that has livable conditions on the planet to sustain life. Of course, our Earth is in the Goldilocks zone. That means it has adequate temperatures to sustain life. And, of course, towards the later stages of Kepler in 2014, NASA announced the K2 mission, which was an extended phase of the Kepler mission, utilizing the spacecraft's remaining capabilities. And, of course, after that, sorry, that K2 mission was looking at star clusters as well. And after that, the telescope finally retired and on November 15th, 2018. Now, more monumentally, we look at these exoplanets, if we can live on them, and, of course... Does Would this be a repetition of history of previous colonization efforts in the New World? That's my question to you, Andre. Do you think the colonization of new planets, is that akin to the colonization of the New World? I think that all depends on how we see new planets. And I think that's an interesting thing that you, that you bring up, how, how people perceive the old world and the New World and colonization efforts, in that people in the, new, in the old world saw the new world as a barren wasteland, uh, sorry, a, a barren wasteland devoid of civilization and that they were bringing with them the torch of civilization. Nowadays, what we see a lot with planets is a sense of awe and discovery in that when we analyze colonization efforts to planets or any initiatives we, we might have, our objectives aren't necessarily to bring any moral righteousness, but simply to put the banner of planet Earth under a new planet. So the banner of human civilization onto a new planet. And that's why I find it very interesting and why, in my opinion, we should definitely support colonization efforts of planets such as Mars and Venus and even our own moon, because even though we haven't proven that life doesn't exist there, it isn't necessarily a colonialist uh, initiative to explore them on our own volition. As far as we know, we're the only planet that has life and that has a thriving civilization on it, even, even though we, we're trying to kill ourselves by, by the way we deal with our planet. But it's something that, that in general is, is what, I, what I, I don't see it as necessarily a, a colonialist endeavor and mainly a uh, discovery and a uh, seeking of, of human discovery and uh, what are your what are your answers to this question it's interesting you think about that and how it is not colonialism it can be perceived as discovery of these new planets but you did mention venus and mars and of course there are there are no signs of intelligent life there per se i'm sure there was frozen water found on mars but more particularly i want to look into exoplanets which was kepler's main goal is to look for these excuse me, exoplanets that have the the ability to sustain these this intelligent life. And that's what I want to see from you. Like, I want to see your perspective on that. Like, if we're thinking specifically uh, exoplanets, and because, of course, there has a chance of intelligence life being there. Would we consider them subhuman in some ways? Because, of course, they're not human. Of course, in many ways, we think of ourselves at the top of our food chain here on Earth. We constantly exploit animals to better ourselves with of course we have farms mm -hmm. these industrial farms we think of ourselves as of course the top dogs of earth now would that be the same if we encounter a almost human-like entity in an exoplanet if if they are let's say let's say hypothetically for the for the sake of the argument if they had yeah. weaponry akin to the natives during the new world in comparison to our technology hopefully that makes sense so of course you had muskets right you had the new world you had the spaniards carrying muskets and of course you had the natives fighting with with crossbows and bow and arrows i don't think they actually had crossbows i'm not sure but they yeah, had bow crossbows and arrows. are a bit too advanced but it's like bow and arrows and <laughs> yeah, spears. Bow and arrows yeah and spears. i get what you mean so would that and... be morally wrong 
to go and exploit these new species that we found on this exoplanet? I think we've learned as a civilization and uh, the way we, we developed critical theories against the way we perceived our history and how we're, we're advancing towards a singular identity and how uh, the benefits of globalization are bringing us closer together. We are coming to terms with the differences of our own planet. And there are two likely outcomes to this. I think, and I'm personally divided between the two of those, we are either going to view this as us being the colonizers and then them the colonized and that we have a moral duty to respect their boundaries and to respect their civilization but also that we have to seek a a sort of peace between these two these these uh, different civilizations and that we owe it to them that we may respect their wishes to develop and even the thought of us landing on a planet with a, a civilization untouched in time and untouched by any sort of external influence would just simply ruin their progression and that's sort of how the natives in the in the new world specifically in south america viewed the white man as a god because of its because of their technologies at the time and I'm afraid that if we replicate that, then we may be committing the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned Kepler in general. Kepler complete, uh, Kepler discovered about like 2,662 planets. Mm -hmm. Many of those were planets in habitable zones. So there is a very good chance that we may end up having to deal with that in the near future. Mm -hmm. And that it's inevitable if you consider the existence of aliens as plausible. So that's my take on it. I guess I could develop it better, but I'm afraid we don't really have the time for that. Mm. But that's my perception of, of how Kepler, what Kepler signifies to the moral nature of humanity and, and what we may, up, way we may end up developing. So we are... Running out of time here, coming down to an hour of recording. If you guys are still listening, thank you so much. I will introduce some closing remarks on Kepler, as well as space colonization. And what a lot of people don't understand about space is just how much wealth there is. I'm sure you guys might have seen, I think it was Elon Musk or Neil deGrasse Tyson expressing, just how much wealth is in a single asteroid. And if these large corporations that we have today, these conglomerates, will be able to perhaps look into these asteroids and exploit them for natural resources, whether it be nickel, iron, or any of the sort that's found in asteroids, because the leading theories in science for how these materials got to Earth is through these asteroids. These are the origins mm -hmm. of our natural resources. So what space presents is just this endless, endless amount of materials that we could use for technological innovation and just any innovation for that matter. And especially if we're looking into different planets, perhaps they may possess similar resources to ours, but they will definitely probably possess different species and perhaps different compounds of materials that we can use. But the unfortunate nature of my perspective is my opinion. The fortunate nature of humans is it's always survival of the fittest, whether if you look at countries, if you look at the globe, if you look at natives, especially the issue is, I feel like our nature is always just greedy, more and more and more. And I'm afraid if we do not stop this moral tradition, then we will have a situation akin to the discovery of the new world. Because what the human race will have is just this exploitation of, let's say, this this new alien that we found. And for whether it would be for their resources that we're going to be exploiting them or introducing our own culture to them. Because this is happening today as we speak. We look at countries in war and how there are specifically dominant governments exploiting the other for resources. If we think of, we could say, the exploitation of workers in Africa. I'm sure if we talked about this with Mr. Cole, but there is a lot of foreign industry that happens in, let's say, the Congo for the for blood diamonds, and we did, we did talk about yeah. blood, blood diamonds briefly. And if we can relate that that to expo, ex, excuse me, expo, 
exoplanets, if we can relate that related to that, would be very interesting because let's say on paper there aren't specific violations. We're not literally, you know, killing them and so forth. We're not having entire governments killing them. But there are ways where these workers are exploited. For example, there are there might be things that are not in writing per se. They're not getting enough money. They're not receiving proper labor. And I feel like this modern version of exploitation is going to become more relevant in world politics as we look towards the developing world, which if we connect it back to the what was the theory? It was the exploitation of. I think it was. It was a neo-Marxism or modernization. I think it was neo-Marxism. Modernization theory. Modernization theory. We can look at the modernization theory as well, and how the world will perpetually, or the developed countries will perpetually exploit the developing for their resources because they simply pay their workers less and their labor labor regulations are less. That's what I said in my global politics essay. But that's yeah. we're well over an hour now. That was my rant. So thank you guys for watching. Again, another great episode of our podcast. Yeah, Stay tuned for the next one.